Luke chapter 16. Today we'll be covering verses 19 to 31 as we close out this chapter. We're looking at the the second parable that uh, Jesus tells in this chapter. Really, two parables make up the bulk of this chapter except for the very few middle verses. And both of the parables concern wealth and possessions. Brings up a question. Why another parable? Why another message concerning wealth and possessions? Really the answer is because of our very slow and dull hearts. We are slow to trust in Jesus, but quick to trust in wealth. And we are very naturally prone to having our own interests at heart and our hearts being closed toward others. And I think particularly to the disadvantaged, to the poor, to those who have fallen on hard times, as we might say. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. That passage tells us that a hand that is closed up toward the poor reveals a heart that is closed to Jesus. A hand that is closed to the poor reveals a heart that is closed to Jesus. Now, it is not that people who care for the poor are thereby going to heaven. It's not that people in heaven are there because they have cared for the poor. But those who are going to heaven, and I'm putting it that particular way that we are going to heaven because of the way this parable is set up by the Lord. But let me say that again. Those who are going to heaven help the poor because when they were poor, heaven helped them. And I'm speaking, of course, of our spiritual poverty. So those who are going to heaven are generous toward the poor. Because when we were poor, heaven was more than generous toward us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into this passage. Father, I pray that you would help us, please. We we desire, as we have just sung, it's our cry to you, that you would show us Christ. Give us eyes to see him. Give us ears to hear him. Give hearts that are open toward Him. If we go, Father, in our natural way, according to our own hearts and schemes, we will, we will hoard the goods of this world to ourselves. We will heap up our treasures on earth if we go our own way. But Father, if You will show us Christ and give us eyes to see Him, we will know in our hearts that He is irresistible. And we will rise up and we will follow. We will go the way of Christ in the Spirit of Christ. And our hearts, Father, will be open and our hands toward those who are in need. Father, we know that this is one of those things that is a true evidence of our faith in Jesus. So I pray that there would be no one here who takes the Word of Christ lightly. But by your Spirit, may each and every one of us take your word to heart 
And I pray that it would be all, our response, may it all be to Your glory and Your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said just a moment ago, Jesus is giving us another parable concerning wealth and possessions because our hearts are very slow to trust in Jesus, but quick to trust in wealth. Because our hearts are naturally open to our own interests and closed to the interests of others. But because the heart of Jesus has been open to us in our spiritual poverty, we have been changed. We have been redeemed. He has given us faith and repentance. He has given us new life, made us new creations. So that now, as we follow Him, our hearts may be in alignment with His and open toward those who are poor. Here in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us the story of two men. One who is rich and one who is poor. The primary primary concentration is on this man who is rich. And we really have the opportunity here to gauge our hearts and our lives to His. And if we find that our hearts are like His, then let us do what He did not. And let us repent. And bring our lives into alignment with Jesus. Let's start with the first few verses, 19 to 21. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus gives us two men here and puts them in contrast one to the other. The first man obviously lives in the lap of luxury. And the way that Jesus describes his wealth is to tell us what his everyday wear was and his everyday fare as far as food goes. The everyday everyday wear was that um, every day he dressed in the finest threads that there were, right down to his underwear, really. Um, that's what the, the word fine linen means. This was, it's not that he wore this special underwear on special occasions, or, you know, he had his lucky drawers or something like that. But every day he had fine linen imported from Egypt that, that he wore underneath. This is his everyday wear. And then there is his everyday fare as far as food goes. He had the finest spread of food that you could find, heaped high every day. Again, not just for special occasions, not just on weekends, but in a in a day that uh, that day's wealth really can't compare to this day's wealth, this man ate very very well, even for our own day. The second man, he doesn't live in the lap of luxury. He lives in absolute squalor. He isn't physically far from the rich man, but economically speaking, he couldn't be further beneath him. He's not covered in the finest clothes, but here's the contrast. He's covered with oozing sores. And he doesn't have, you know, a daily fill of food. This man doesn't have food, period. He's laid at the rich man's gate 
absolutely just wasting away. Like the prodigal with the pigs who longed for the pods that the pigs were eating, this man longs for the crumbs that have fallen on the rich man's floor. We have, in these few verses, a clue that there is a great reversal coming for both of them. The clue is that Jesus doesn't name the rich man. And you think about that for just a moment. Who would have known this man's name in his life? Everybody would have known it. Everybody would have been inquiring after him. Everybody would have been hoping to to get in with him, right? Everybody would have known his name. But who would have inquired about the poor man? Who would have taken an interest in him? Who would have wanted to draw near to him and, and bring him into their lives? No one. I think you could say everyone would have known the rich man's name and nobody would have known the poor man at his gate, his name. But Jesus identifies it to show us that God knows him. God knows this poor man. God is in relationship with this man. But that rich man remains a stranger to God. Not that God doesn't know the the label that identifies him, whatever it was, but he shows that there was no relationship on the part of God to that man. No closeness, no true knowledge, no intimate relationship. And so we're given a clue that there is a great reversal coming. And before I move on, let me just mention what it also says about this poor man at the end of verse 21. You see, uh, it seems like there are only two living things that are drawn to the poor individual, Lazarus. Two living things, dogs and angels. The dogs are drawn to him, not domesticated, cute little big-eyed puppies, but scavenging street dogs, drawn to him by the fetid smell of oozing ulcers. This last little part is not saying this was the one good in his life. It's saying even this was a horrible feature of his life. The other living thing drawn to him, persons, not human persons, but persons nonetheless, are the angels who are ready. I just, I imagine them chomping at the bit, itching to, to go at the command of God to bring this man home. So both men die. They go the way of all the earth. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man had never bothered about poor Lazarus, but now he has the attention of the angels as they escort him into the presence of, into paradise, into, you know, you think about it. Well, let me read this guy, David Garland. He says, unlike the guests, who scrambled for the seat of honor next to the host. You remember that from Genesis 14, or not Genesis, Luke chapter 14, where Jesus was at the the feast housed, uh, hosted by that Pharisee, and he noticed how everybody was kind of trying to 
weasel their way in next to the host where they could have the seat of honor and he spoke against that. Well, this man has never had the seat of honor. He's never been even invited to a banquet. David Garland writes, but Lazarus, who was never invited to an earthly banquet, is escorted to the seat of honor by angels. No doubt the rich man is buried with all that great ceremony and everything and his his name is sung and everybody approves of his life and is told how worthy his life was. But he wakes up in Hades. Hades is, just broadly speaking, the realm of the dead. But more specifically, it is the place of judgment, the temporal place of judgment, that will one day give up its dead who will be sentenced to the lake of fire. So in Hades, in torment, the rich man looks up and far off, Jesus says, he sees the patriarch Abraham and Lazarus at his side in the place of honor. Now, what we have here is, it would be impossible to have a greater reversal of fortunes. You know how I use that term in quotes, really. Uh, you could not have a greater reversal of fortunes than this. Now the rich man is on the outside. And Lazarus is within, in the place of honor. Now Lazarus has all the comfort. And the rich man is in agony. In verse 24 and following, well, what we're going to see is that this man makes two pleas to Abraham. And one protest. And in turn, Abraham will reject everything that he says. As far as Lazarus goes, we don't have him saying a word. Really, Abraham speaks on his behalf. But the rich man has plenty to say. First of all, in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Has his heart changed with his fortunes? Has his heart changed with his circumstance? I think that this is very important for us to discern here to answer. In his speaking, it's what he doesn't say that reveals that his heart has not changed in the least. I want to give you three things. First of all, if this man was changed, what should be, what would you expect for him to say first thing, right off the bat? Sorry? Wouldn't you expect him to express contrition over his sin and to confess his sin? But there is none of that. Second of all, he has a longing But it's the same longing in his death that he had in his life. It is a longing not for God, but for God's gifts. And third, notice how he regards Lazarus. He wants Lazarus to be sent to help him. The Bible says it it really has this, this picture of direction here. He looks up and he looks far off. And there he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side, far above, far away from him. But how does he see him in his heart? 
he still sees Lazarus as far beneath him. And so Lazarus must come to his aid. Though he never so much as walked outside of the gate to give Lazarus just the crumbs off his table, he still cries for Lazarus to be sent to par- from paradise, from paradise to Hades, to give him relief for his misery. Now Abraham responds in verse 25 and 26 to this plea. And there's two things about his response. In verse 25, he reminds the rich man of irreversible consequences. And second, in verse 26, he reminds him of this impassable chasm that God has fixed. So verse 25, first of all, the consequences. He said, child, remember that you... Notice there's no gloating, there's no sticking it to him. No harshness. There's still tenderness, but truth. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. It's interesting how Abraham responds. He doesn't come up with a a big list of, of gross, immoral actions. He doesn't talk about wicked actions at all. Because there's nothing to say about actions one way or the other. I'm... I say that. I'm sure there could be, but that's not the point. The point is inaction. Inaction. He never did a thing. He just looked the other way. He ignored him. Never so much as lifted a finger on Lazarus' behalf. How much of our sin is not evil that we indulge in, but good? that we neglect. Not so much the evil that we indulge in, but the good that we neglect. He doesn't point out things, you know, uh, the sins he committed, but the righteousness, the goodness that he omitted from his life. And how often are, are we the same? You know, that we see someone in need and we just kind of put it out of our minds. Don't think about the sufferer. Look the other way. And then we don't lift a finger and we don't love. In Christian circles, do you hear more judgment against sinners or compassion for sinners? More judgment against them or compassion for them? And I'm really speaking about outside of our own families because I think that, I think we all have a, even like he did, And we'll see that in a moment. A natural compassion for your own. No matter how badly they act, no matter how stubborn their unbelief, we have a compassion for them. They go through all, you know, all kinds of escapades and evil, living like the prodigal, but there's still that, that natural longing for them. So outside of our own families, do we hear in Christian circles more judgment against sinners or more compassion for them? I mean, we know how the conversation goes. You know, you're at the, you're at the rich man's gate just to leech off his wealth. If you tried, you could make it. Clearly, you're not trying. And what we do is we take 
one set of principles of God's word, work, justice, that kind of thing, and we pit those principles of God's word against compassion, which makes our talk and our attitude doubly sinful because we are using God's word, God himself, to justify our sin. It would be better to say that we don't care than to say that we do care, but that sufferer bears too much blame. Better to say that we don't care than to cloak our sin in terms of God helps those who help themselves. Better to admit we just want to help the good sinners and not the bad ones. Abraham, in verse 26, he further reminds the rich man not only of the irreversible consequences of his inaction, he also reminds him of this impassable chasm. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I know we're so used to the talk of the judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God on those who do not believe. But our, our hearts desperately need to be stirred for those who are yet enslaved in the darkness of sin. For one reason, as is said very plainly here, once a person has died apart from Jesus Christ, there is no possibility for relief at all, ever. And I know that this may sound to our contemporary ears more so than to peoples in the past. This may sound cruel. And someone brought it up in Sunday school this morning, coming across the opinions of someone who said, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And just really reading the Bible and their whole belief system of the doctrine of endless, everlasting punishment. How is this just? How is it not unjustly cruel? Let me give you a couple of answers. First of all, I do believe that the holy anger of God will be active and righteously present forever in hell. The holy anger of God will be active, present, fulfilling its work on those who do not believe forever in hell. But let me also say this. You know, there comes up maybe this question or this, this possibility. What if the sinner repents? What if the person under the judgment of God in hell repents? What if they change their heart? What if, you know, what about all of that? You know, if we, if we have that thought, if we have that question, we think that that might be a possibility, just strike it out. It's not. Because we would be making an unbiblical presumption 
that a sinner can produce repentance in themselves. And they can't. Repentance is the gift of God. We can't just freely, of our own will, produce repentance in our lives. And here's the thing about hell. Not only is the sinner cut off from God, but cut off from all of God's gifts. All of God's gifts, including the gift of repentance. The sinner's ultimate desire, now this may be completely unconscious in them, but the sinner's ultimate desire, apart from Christ, is to be done with God forever. To be completely free of God. You know, to throw off the chains of God and just get away, to escape. That's the ultimate desire. And one day that desire will be fulfilled. They will be given over to the desire of their hearts and they will be finally cut off from God. But if they are cut off from God, they are also cut off from all of God's gifts. What does that mean? What does that look like? They lose light. That light is the gift of God. And so there is everlasting darkness in its place. Comfort and well-being are the gift of God. But taken away, there is nothing but distress and agony in its place. Friendship, company, that's the gift of God. But when you are cut off from God and His gifts, what happens? You are utterly alone and left to yourself forever. Hope is the gift of God. But when you lose God's gift of hope, you have hopelessness endlessly endlessly in its place. So at the same time that I say there is the supernatural judgment of God actively present upon the unbeliever in hell forever, there are also the natural attendant consequences of being cut off from God and His gifts. So, I know that so many think that this is cruel, but listen, if you cut down the tree, you can't keep the shade. And if you cut your water line to your house, you can't draw water from the faucet. If you cut off the source, you can't keep the supply. And if you are cut off from God forever, You cannot keep His gifts. And it's as simple and plain as that. And now the rich miser responds again. Turned down, rejected, he says, Then I beg you, Father, in verse 27, to send him to my father's house. Here's his interest and his his, uh, affection for his own. He says, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, this might seem like a good thing on the surface. Again, this might seem like he's had a change of heart, but he hasn't. You see, if Lazarus is to fulfill his purpose, he can't simply be exalted. He must serve the rich man's interests. I think that there is true concern on the part of the rich man for his brothers. 
But underneath that, there is the belief that Lazarus can't stay in heaven if the rich man is in hell. He can't take that. Verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the one true word of the one true God. That is enough for their repentance. That is enough for their salvation. In God's Word, He reveals who He is and what He has done. He reveals His commandments. He reveals His warnings. He reveals His promises. All that those five brothers need to live and not die is found in the Word of God. But here again in verse 30, in response, in this protest, we see that this man hasn't changed at all. Not in the least. How does he respond? He, he responds really rejecting what Abraham says. His estimate of God, his estimate of God's word is that the word is not enough to save. It doesn't have the power to save. In the Bible alone, we find the one way, the one truth, the one life. We find the power of God to salvation. But the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. See it in verse 30. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He doesn't believe that the word of God is enough. What does he believe? He believes the old adage that says, seeing is believing. Haven't we been through the word of God enough that we know? All of us that seeing is not necessarily believing. The old adage is wrong, dead wrong. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in perfect paradise, experiencing like none has ever experienced the goodness of God. Did they believe it? Did they believe in the goodness of God? No, they believed the tempter's lie who said that God is not good, that God was holding back from them, that really... They could be like God, knowing good and evil, if they went to the fruit that God was withholding, if they ate of it. Seeing was not believing. Think of the Israelites having been redeemed by the power of God from slavery in Egypt. Surely they would have believed in their God, in His faithfulness, and in His goodness, right? If anybody should have believed. But they did not believe. That whole generation and mass did not believe in the goodness of God. Later on in Jesus' own ministry, He will raise a Lazarus, not this Lazarus He speaks of, but a literal, actual Lazarus from the grave. He's in a state of advanced decomposition. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man emerges from the grave and there are scores of eyewitnesses on hand. When word comes back to the religious establishment, are they then finally convinced that Jesus is who He says He is? They may believe it. They may believe, in fact, that He is the Messiah. But do they like it? They determine evermore to destroy Him. And while they're at it, to be rid of Lazarus too. Seeing is not believing. And so, Abraham says, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I want you to listen closely. I have a a lot here to say that I think is kind of meaty. And so I want you to tune in and pay attention. I'm going to have to read a bit just to be sure that I'm as clear as I can be. If the rich man's brothers oppose the truth that they hear, they will also oppose the truth that they see. And see, that's what miracles are. It's the truth made visible. What was Jesus teaching by His words throughout His ministry? He was teaching that the kingdom had come. He was teaching, well, if we go to the book of John, He was teaching that I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. On and on and on. And we know what He did with those statements, those I am claims. He took the Word and He made it visible with a miracle. He demonstrated that He is the bread of life by feeding the 5,000 plus with five loaves of bread and two fish. He revealed that He is in fact the light of the world with the miracle of healing the man who was born blind. He demonstrated absolutely that He is the resurrection and the life when He raised Lazarus from the grave so that the truth that they heard, they could also see. But what happened? The truth that they heard, which they opposed, they also opposed when they saw it. It didn't change them. The miracles didn't change them. So they see a miracle that declares the saving power of God. They didn't like it when they heard it. Why will they like that truth when they see it? You see, the disbelief problem runs deeper than a problem of the lack of evidence. There's a lot of people that say that. You know, I I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God's existence. And if one day I stand before this God that you claim is true, and He says to me, why didn't you believe? You should have believed. I will say to Him, I didn't believe because of a lack of evidence. You didn't show me. What's the problem here? What do they really want? Do they really want more evidence? I don't think so. They want a different God. They don't want evidence of the one true God. They want a different God altogether. That's the problem. So, therefore, it is not God's intent to change up the way He shows the truth. It's not His intent to change the medium of the revelation from the audible to the visual but to change the heart of the sinner. If the world is opposed without a miracle, a boatload of miracles won't change that. All the undeniable proofs of God under the sun won't make someone love Him. Loving God requires a miracle of a different sort. 
It requires regeneration. It requires second birth. And the Bible says that the miracle of regeneration doesn't happen by a miracle that you can see. It happens by the word that you hear. You have been born again, Peter writes, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's how a soul comes to life. So when the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God to salvation, gives life to a dead heart, then when we hear and when we see, we will love what we hear and we will love what we see. Our hearts will change. We will believe and we will repent and we will say from our hearts, this Christ is irresistible. And if we find by the grace and mercy of God that Jesus Christ is irresistible, we will see sinners so much differently than the natural way of thinking. We will see all kinds of sinners. The rich sinners and the poor sinners. The prodigal sinners and the self-righteous proud sinners. We will see them all the same with the compassion of Jesus Christ. The kind of compassion that does not ignore them but the kind of compassion that invites them into our lives. We will see them not in the way that the rich man did, requiring the poor to serve me, but we will see them with such compassion that we will be compelled to lay down our lives in service to them. If any man has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Jesus is calling his followers because heaven helped us when we were poor to help those who are in need. I have in my heart some of the old thinking. Let's just call it what it is. Sin. I have it in my heart. I know that I do. What can change my heart? What can grow compassion from the little it is to being deep and great compassion? The love of Jesus. Knowing our unworth and knowing how much Christ has loved us. What He sacrificed and laid down for us, that will change us. Knowing the Gospel, that will change our attitude and our action toward the poor. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving to us Your Son He became poor so that we might become rich. 
And we know that we are rich. We have all wealth because we have been blessed in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have not withheld your goodness, your gifts from us. We thank you. And we also ask, Lord, that knowing this and taking it to heart would change us. I pray, Father, that we would not be, certainly not guilty of condescension, contempt, and cruelty. But I pray, Father, that we would also not be guilty just of not doing anything, of looking the other way. I pray, Father, that we would pour our lives out for others. So help us to see. Give us, help us to see the suffering of others for what it is. Not to cast blame, not to cast judgment, but to truly help. And I, I pray that you would give us opportunities to help. Give us eyes and a mind to look for those opportunities. Help us to be careful. Help us to be strategic in our thinking. Give us a heart for those who are in need. And I pray, Father, that we would freely use what you have given to us to lift them up and to show them the love of Jesus. Father, and I pray that as we pour out our lives, we would also be very, very careful and faithful to pour out the words because it's not material wealth that will change any heart, but it is the words of Jesus. It is the gospel. This will change their lives. So give us a burden for souls. Arm us with the gospel. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom and give us courage. Send us out and use us to bring people from the slavery of sin into the kingdom of your beloved Son. In His name we pray. Amen.